This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Hello and welcome. This is Colleen O'Grady, the host of the Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast. This is a gathering place for moms to be encouraged, nurtured, and inspired. Also, you'll learn the latest in teen research and trends and get practical parenting tips. You really can improve your relationship with your teen and enjoy the teenage years. Welcome back, everyone, to the 137th episode of Power Your Parenting Moms and Teens podcast. I'm Colleen O'Grady, the host of the show. Today, we're going to talk about a new book that just came out, The Unlikely Art of Parental Pressure, a positive approach to pushing your child to be their best self. Dr. Chris Thurber and Dr. Hendry Weisinger and I had a really interesting discussion about all things pressure. We hear a lot today about how much pressure our teens are under and the dangers of parents pressuring their kids too much and creating kids who are anxious and depressed. But these authors say that pressure itself actually isn't bad. It's an issue of how pressure is applied. So how can parents differentiate between healthy and unhealthy pressure? You know, all parents want their kids to be successful, but again, what does that really mean? We explore the difference between stress and pressure. We talk about how to transform a do or die pressure into healthy pressure. There are lots of rich and practical ideas in this podcast. Chris Thurber, PhD, co-author, of the unlikely art of parental pressure is a board certified clinical psychologist, educator, author, and father with a BA from Harvard and a PhD in child and adolescent psychology from UCLA. An acclaimed keynote speaker, he serves as a clinician and instructor at Phillips Exeter Academy. Henry Weisinger, PhD, is a world-renowned psychologist and pioneer in the field of pressure management, as well as the author of a number of best-selling books, including Performing Under Pressure, which was a New York Times best-selling book. 
He has consulted with and developed programs for dozens of Fortune 500 companies and government agencies. So welcome, Dr. Chris Thurber and Dr. Henry Weisinger. I'm so glad that you're here. Happy to be here. Me too. Yes. So you have a new book, The Unlikely Art of Parental Pressure, A Positive Approach to Pushing Your Child to Be Their Best Self. So my first question is, why did you write this book? And how did the two of you end up co-writing the book? I had written a, uh, a book called Performing Under Pressure and had turned it into a uh, class and was calling different schools. And the first school I called was Exeter, Phillips Exeter Academy. And Chris answered the phone. We started talking. Now, we had about a 20-minute conversation. And what I didn't know is he was in Oxford, England on the campus and still took the phone call and so on. So um, we were talking and then we had a follow-up call. And at the same time, that Varsity Blues scandal had come out. Mm-hmm. And I yeah. started thinking, you know, forget about the kids performing under pressure. What about the parents and the whole issue of parental pressure? So I called Chris back and I said, listen, we're going to do a book together on parental pressure. And it worked out great. And Chris, you said yes. Yeah, um, you know, and and uh, didn't feel much pressure saying yes, because <laughs> Hank and I are very much on the same page about this. I had read the book that he wrote on performing under pressure, which made a key point that's a big surprise for a lot of people. And that is when pressure is really high in a kind of do or die circumstance, success is very narrowly defined. People's performance goes down. We can all remember some iconic moments like the final seconds of some athletic competition where somebody scores a goal or sinks a three-pointer if it's a basketball game. And that happens, but rarely. So we remember those instances, but Typically, what occurs in a high-pressure situation is that people's performance is average or below average. And Hank and I started talking about what effect parental and also sociocultural pressure has on children and adolescents and realized, wow, uh, if more parents understood that the kind of pressure they're applying is actually diminishing the quality of their kids' performance and coming at a great psychological cost, they would switch gears. And really, we've been asking the wrong question for you know centuries. It's not how much pressure, it's what kind of pressure are we applying? Yeah. You know, I, one absolutely. of the things that we, we saw, you know, it sounds like a hyperbole, but it really isn't when you look at the studies that have been conducted all over the world on this subject, Uh, you can really make the case that unhealthy parental pressure is a global pandemic. You have to read the research to really understand the detrimental effects that it had. And the irony is that these are well-intentioned parents. You know, no parent wakes up in the morning saying, what can I do today that's going to drive my kid to therapy, you know, or put them in a hospital or cause an eating disorder or, or create depression. Uh, These are well-intentioned parents. They want the best for their kids, but inadvertently sometimes they actually create unhealthy pressure 
and their kids pay the consequences. We, we didn't want to make the kids victims. It's really the parents. We want the parents to be able to step back and look at themselves. And as Chris said, not look at whether they're applying too much or too little pressure, but look at how they are applying it. Right. You know, I completely agree. I see this in my work with my moms and I see this in my, my programs and my private practice. I see it with the teens and with the college students. And I really see that exactly what you're talking about. I, what I, I hear from parents, I think parents feel more pressure than they've had before. Like my mom didn't feel much pressure. She was like, just go to school. And, you know, you could get into those state colleges. It wasn't that much of a big deal. And my grades weren't great. But I think these parents are feeling a lot of pressure and then unconsciously pass that pressure down to their teens. And so I think you're right. Every parent wants their child to be successful and they think they're doing what's helpful. Of course, every, no mom is wanting to do something that's not helpful, but it's not helpful. And I see the stressed out teens and college students. So every parent is saying, I want my teen, I want my college student to be successful. Like, what does that even mean? Chris? That's a good question and one that every parent will answer a bit differently. But it's a great question, Colleen, to be asking at the beginning of a reassessment of one's own parenting style. What what are my goals here? What am I actually striving for? And I think that, you know, we were talking a little bit before the show started about some of the sociocultural pressures that exist. And we could name a few that I think most of your listeners are familiar with. The pressure to get into a particular college or university, the pressure to make a certain amount of money, the pressure to have certain clothes or conform in other visible ways to what people perceive is a cohort associated with success. But, you know, none of those things, of course, brings a person happiness. <laughs> and, you know, we know that from the research, regardless of what school you went to or how much money you're making or what kind of clothes you have, um, has virtually no bearing on your self-esteem, on your level of genuine happiness. And actually, we know that people who are chasing after material wealth or particular markers of status are more likely to feel depressed, to feel anxious. So asking, what do we mean by success is an awesome first question. My hope is that a lot of moms and dads and other caregivers arrive at an answer that is something like that my child is first and foremost, you know, physically and emotionally healthy, that my child is doing what she or he or they want to do, that they are contributing in some meaningful way to another person's life or a group of people's lives or to the world in general. And I think, you know, there's, again, wonderful research to suggest that the most lasting kind of authentic happiness comes from tapping into something that a person believes is one of their signature strengths and, and doing that, at least some of the time, in service to other people. So if that's your definition of success, then 
you're going to revise the kind of pressure that you put on your kids. It's not going to be narrowly defined and high stakes. It's going to be broadly defined and encouraging of, of effort. Yeah. You know, and a lot of parents that we found will conflate their own aspirations and turn them into expectations for their kids. You know, whether it's the parent who is a frustrated athlete and all of a sudden they want to live vicariously. Too many parents, we found, put their expectations are based on their needs and what makes them feel good. That's why you're noticing that parents will say, uh, you know, where their kid goes to school. It's like they're going to school. They get ego strokes when their kid goes to an Ivy League school. A lot of parents will say, oh, my kid just got into Harvard, you know, or or Princeton or, or Yale. And that is making the parent feel good. A lot of parents will have the attitude, you can do whatever you want. You'll be successful. But the, the meta message is, as long as I approve. And that's what happens. Then it becomes unhealthy because then the kid is not always doing what he or she is interested in. They're following what the parents are. How many times have we seen the movie where the kid says, well, you know, I have to go into the family business. I can't disappoint, you know, my parents, even in terms of cultural things of having to marry the right person, or you can't marry the person from the quote, other side of the tracks. And also what we found is that in different spheres of a child's development, intellectual development, social development, vocational development, there are differences when you talk about success. Like pressure parents, we have found, they are more concerned with what was the grade. They're looking for academic achievement where support parents want the child to become curious. And that's what they'll emphasize in developing their interests. One of the transformations, maybe the most important one, it starts it off, is for parents to look at their expectations and make them child-centered rather than parent-centered. The parent might want their kid to go to Harvard, but the reality, the kid has no interest in that, and there's no way he or she has the ability to do that. And when the parent keeps that expectation fixated on that, that's where the unhealthy pressure starts. Because remember, it's defined from the child's point of view. It's when the parent has these expectations where the kid thinks, I can never meet these. They're impossible. And the more the kid cares about those expectations, the more pressure they will feel. If you don't care about your parents' expectations, you're going to feel less pressure, at least in terms of achieving if that's what they wanted you to so we want parents to look at how they formulate their expectations does the husband and the wife or do the two partners even talk to each other do they even communicate to each other what they expect of their kids i think parents would find that a very healthy little exercise if they sat down with each other and they said what do we expect from our kids and then they could communicate those expectations to see if they're realistic or or not One of the things y'all wrote in the book that I thought was interesting that I hadn't thought about, which are the apps that I think it's one of the traps that parents can fall into is feeling like you're a good parent if your kid is successful, basically with high grades. And you're talking about some of those apps where they're kind of sharing like, oh, my, my daughter made a 92 and 
kind of fishing out what the other grades are. Can you talk about that? I mean, I think there's always been, I don't know that we have a historical record to support this, but I'll, I don't think I'm going out on too thin a limb to say, since there have been parents, parents have been comparing notes about how their kids are doing. And, you know, that's long before the existence of formal educational institutions like universities. But the thing about social media apps, whether that's you know, Facebook or WhatsApp or WeChat um, or others is that they make it very easy to form groups under the pretense of we're going to support each other or we're all the parents or primary caregivers of kids who go to the University of New Hampshire or whatever it might be. And a lot of the support that parents give each other, the information that they're sharing, uh, you know, Hank and I think is very healthy. But to your point, Colleen, when parents start to compare, not on the basis of, like Hank was saying earlier, how inquisitive or creative is your child or how much do they help their fellow students or what have they come up with to innovate variation on their major field of study or something like that, that that really does bring lasting happiness. And I think for the students themselves is intrinsically motivating. But instead, the parents, you know, directly or indirectly are very focused on quantitative markers like grades on tests and things like that. And again, sort of low level, which we had prior to social media, and also at a level that happens quite slowly because it requires that you actually have a face-to-face interaction with the person. Yeah, there's going to be some comparison, and it wasn't particularly healthy, but it was at such a low level that um, I don't think it had such a dramatic effect on kids' mental health. But as you pointed out, Colleen, we tell the story in one of the opening chapters of the book of a person who, you know, high school student who is finding out her own grade, not from the teacher or by checking online, but her parent has already checked online to see the grade posted by the teacher and already posted that to a social media site to find out what other kids got on the test. And now other kids are coming up to the student and saying, I heard you got a 92 on the test or whatever, which is, you know, got so many harmful pressure facets to it. It's, you know, it's an invasion of privacy by a parent who's really too sort of enmeshed and maybe living out their own dreams, but in any case, kind of invasive to the student's own affairs. Not that parents shouldn't be privy to kids' grades, but not in that way. And it's just inviting a lot of unhealthy comparison with other kids' performance, fed in part by the perception that they're are a limited number of slots at, at schools that are sort of worth anything. And of course, every school with competitive admissions or with any admissions at all, I mean, this is all schools have a finite number of spots, but boy, there are, you know, 25,000 colleges and universities in the world. And so many would be an excellent match for any given student's interests and aptitudes. Or when Hank and I write that it's important for parents to present opportunities broadly and not narrowly, that's an example of what we're talking about. If, if you say, you know, Colleen, you'll be successful if you go to this or that school, and then it's really got to be one of those two, then 
that's a lot of unhealthy pressure likely to you know make you anxious and decrease your current level of academic performance on the other hand if a parent says you know colleen you've got great math skills and you also play the harp beautifully who knows what you'll want to pursue or maybe both of those things but wow there are some dozens of schools that have wonderful math departments or great stem professors as well as fantastic music programs, we should take a look at those. That's motivating. Yeah, because one of the things that pressure parents do when you go back to the idea of success is they'll view things as scarcity of opportunities. So there, there's, there's only two schools uh, that you have to you can get into, when in reality, as Chris pointed out, there could be 100 schools. But those pressure parents then narrow the choice, and that's what makes it more of a do-or-die type of situation. It becomes an all-or-nothing. And they quadruple the stakes. While support parents will have, there's multiple opportunities. It's not, this is where you want to go, but if you can't, you go somewhere else and it'll be just as good. That message is very different than these are the only two schools that are going to help you. And that comes from the parents' need. Can you talk about what are the seven dimensions of parental pressure? It's Hank mentioned the first, which is, you know, opportunity and whether it's scarce or whether there are multiple opportunities. Another dimension is importance. And that gets to your question earlier, Colleen, about how we define success. Another would be competition. Is it something that is ferocious and there can only be one victor? Or can we view a lot of situations, not just academic situations, but social situations as a win-win? Another is perfection. And We know that parents who emphasize an exacting nature for any outcome, whether it's how you wipe the counter down after you make a sandwich or how you fold your clothes or what your penmanship is like, the more emphasis there is on one perfect way of doing something, the more unhealthy pressure is applied. Another is a sense of urgency. This dimension of when things need to be done and how important it is to do at a particular time. You know, you you have to take the PSAT so that you can then sit for the SAT so you can take it early. So if you don't do well, we can get a tutor and you can take it again. There are deadlines in life, but if those are expressed with a great deal of urgency, it, it really adds to the unhealthy pressure quotient. And then the last two are the display of material things that emphasizes an acceptable or preference for that could be a particular hairstyle that's popular on TikTok or particular kind of sneakers or the more that parents buy into the importance of appearance, either as a way of displaying status or success as they define it, the more unhealthy that is. And then finally is the one we talked about earlier, the dimension of control. How much are parents involved in their kids' lives and how much do they allow for some autonomy and healthy growth? And of course, the younger children are, the more involved we need to be in certain ways. And one hopes that parents stay involved in really healthy ways throughout their child life. Even when their kids are adults, you know, I feel like, you know, my mom is involved in my life in a way that's really healthy. And, you know, that feels really good. But you can be intrusive in a way that backfires and kids will hide a lot from their parents. I'm sure you see that, you know, in your clinical practice. And one of the things that parents should look at is how these factors all relate together. When, When you think of urgency, 
scarcity of opportunity. You know, I, I perceive the world as scarcity of opportunity. There's only two schools you can get into. So now you have to get your application in right away. That's how important it is. <laughs> right. <laughs> there can be no mistakes. It has to be, you know, perfect. And they all come together. And the problem with urgency, you know, the, the pressure parent will say it's the first day of Christmas vacation. Do your homework now, you know, or do those, you better start on those applications. So the child, whether they're young or a teen, never has a chance for any respite. They're using all their psychological resources and it becomes very, very unhealthy. Mm. So parents should step back. They should rate themselves like on a scale of one to seven. One is super urgent, you know, to the other side of the uh, continuum. And the same thing with how involved they are. So they get an awareness of where they are because those factors will then impact how they communicate uh, and relate to their child. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good. I thought it was really interesting how you define the difference between stress and pressure. Can you talk about that? Sure. One of the things I noticed in my first book and looking at research is that a lot of even academicians would use stress and pressure in the same sentence as though they are interchangeable and they are not. They're different psychological constructs. Uh, there are many definitions of stress. So in some of the differences, you experience stress for the most part when you are overwhelmed. You feel overwhelmed. You, there are demands made upon you. You don't necessarily have the resources to respond. you got a million things to do, but there's only five hours in the day that you can do them all. But you can delegate, prioritize, blow some off. So you feel overwhelmed, and usually the feelings associated with stress are like you feel exhausted, you know, tired. That's why people say you need a vacation. Uh, in pressure, you experience pressure when you're in a situation that is important, and the key is the outcome is uncertain, and it's dependent on your performance. So if you're taking a test and you know you're getting 100, there is no pressure. If you're watching a sporting event and you've already won the game, you know, you're just winding down the clock, there's no pressure. You don't even want to watch it. But if that game is two seconds left, you know, and the Astros are playing the Red Sox or they're in the ninth (laughs) inning and it's only a one-run difference and the Astros have a man on third and there's two outs and Altuve's up and he can't get the signs this time. There is no cheating. That's when you're on the edge of your seat. The Red Sox were winning 15 nothing. You would you would turn it off, and people and, and the danger of students, for example, who confuse stress and pressure. They're living every moment as though it's a pressure moment, as though it's do or die. They're on high alert, twenty four seven. So I, I used to do a lot of work with people in the financial industry, and they're always on uh, on that, and you're wasting all those psychological resources. When you're watching a sporting event, you never hear the announcer say the stress is increasing, but you hear him (laughs) say the pressure is increasing. So if you have to perform, you're in a pressure situation. If you're feeling overwhelmed, most likely you're experiencing stress. So those would be some barometers. The feelings we associate with pressure are fear, anxiety, embarrassment if we, you know, if we fail. I know back to the, you know, the difference. Chris was an outstanding student, went to Harvard. I was a terrible student. 
And I remember when we got our class ranks, talk about social pressure, they give it to you a little envelope in the auditorium. As soon as I saw my rank, which was close to the bottom of the class in a very prestigious high school, I ran out of there because I didn't want my friends to say, let me see what your rank was. was I didn't know that seven, story. That's tough. If it was six or seven or, or 10, which was like Chris, then I would have stayed there to tell everybody. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how I think kids react today with, with social media. They get embarrassed, you know, if they are a low man, low person on totem pole when their grades are posted. And then parents feel embarrassed. Absolutely. I agree. So how are the support parent and pressure parent different? And can you give us an example of how a support and pressure parent would talk differently with some of these dimensions like control or urgency? Sure. I mean, the way we define it, pressure parent is likely on any of these dimensions to be on the extreme side of, let's say, urgency. Things are very urgent rather than there are multiple opportunities or this is how we can plan or in terms of availability, they're talking about you know a scarcity of resources rather than different pathways. And, you know, really that can seem a little abstract. We fill the book with a lot of different examples to bring these concepts to light. But think about these two dimensions, you know, broadly construed. One is how important is the outcome? And does it seem like a do or die type situation? Or will there be multiple opportunities even if something doesn't work out the way we plan? How are you framing as you asked earlier, Colleen, success, is there really only kind of one narrow definition or are there a lot of different opportunities? Now, one of the keys is that a key difference between the way that a pressure parent talks and the way that a support parent talks is the results of pressure parenting are that intrinsic motivation, that motivation that comes from inside that leads us to have flow experiences where we're just enjoying ourselves so much and so immersed in what we're doing that we lose track of time. That's really what we're trying to cultivate. But intrinsic motivation disappears when all of the pressure is coming from outside and parents are, as Hank was describing, more trying to fulfill their own needs. Let's take an example that's not academic because we've talked a lot about admissions and college and things like that. But let's take an example from sports. Um, we use an example in the book of two fathers talking to their sons about a gymnastics competition. The pressure parent is going to go up to their son and say, listen, Sam, you got to look at the scores, right? You see how close it is at the top. You're neck and neck with three other gymnasts and you have one event left. High bar, it's your best event. You've really got to stick the landing to, to be at the top. If you hope to win this competition, that's where you need to be. And if you want to go anywhere with your gymnastics and have all of this mean anything to get you into a D1 school, you are going to have to chalk up some wins, not third place or fourth place finishes, right? Now, the parent might be thinking, this is the pep talk that my kid needs in order to really see this competition the way I do, which is the linchpin to his getting into a really good school or getting a look from division one coach. Instead, you know, the research is pretty clear. That kind of pressure is going to backfire Defining success very narrowly, have in the short term, 
to be in first place. Otherwise, it's not going to mean anything. And in the intermediate term, get into a D1 school. Otherwise, all of this work with gymnastics is going to be for naught. By contrast, a support parent would, you know, come up to their kid and say, Sam, I'm so impressed with the way that you did parallel bars was absolutely fantastic. And, you know, you've been working a lot on some of those moves and you really nailed it. You've got, you know, one more event coming up. And if you put forth that same amount of effort, I think that you're really going to do well. And all of this practice that you've put in will really pay off and you'll really shine. Your team is excited that you've done as well as you've done and, you know, keep it up. It's broad. It's encouraging. We're not putting first place or a D1 admit to the center of the conversation or into sharp focus. And that sort of encouragement that is offering some specific praise, say how they did on the last event, that is um, praising effort more than outcome, that's going to increase the kid's natural motivation to do gymnastics, a nod toward the contribution that the gymnast is making toward his team, that sort of collaborative effort. All of that's really good. And, you know, for your listeners who are thinking, oh, that just sounds like a watered down pep talk, not the kind that I should be giving or any parent should be giving. Plus, it sounds like you're lowering your standards. You know, Hank and I would vehemently disagree. Being a support parent has nothing at all to do with lowering your standards. In fact, if you have high standards as a parent, keep them right where they are because that's great. But do what you suggested, Colleen, begin with asking, how do I define success? Like, what exactly am I encouraging my kid to do? And then, as Hank said, be sure that's not actually your agenda. Make sure it's really what's healthy for your child, because your child is a different person than you. And then with those high standards intact, adjust your approach the book is about not lowering standards. The book is about changing your strategy, changing the way that you parent so that the pep talks don't backfire. So they actually enhance performance rather than diminish it. Yeah. Well, and one of the things that underlies that is that pressure parents using the sports example will expect their kids to win. They're making it like first place. Where support parents, the real message is do the best you can do. And that is the core parental expectation that all parents, in our opinion, should have, which is personal best. The pressure parent will say the night before SATs, this is the most important test you're going to take. You know, you really got to do well on it. Now, notice the word important. Because the more important you make something, the more pressure, as we discussed, you experience. While the support parent will say, thinking multiple opportunities, it's just another test. Just do your best. Because that's all you can really do. Whether it's on the athletic field or the academic field, you can't do better than your best. As we now know, we see students not rising to the occasion and getting perfect SATs. But many times the SAT, the perfect, the good student, will do below his or her capabilities because of the experience of, of pressure. So parents should start to think their core expectation, you can always expect your kids to do their best. It would be unrealistic to expect them always to come in first place. They might never come in first place.
And one of the things we realize is for many parents, it's hard for them to accept the fact that your kid can do their best, but they're still not getting into Harvard. Doesn't mean they're a bad student. They have the same, it's the luck of the draw. It's like winning a lottery. You know, you, you take all those students, they all have the same scores. They all look great on paper and whatever. And pressure parents will make their kid feel as though he or she didn't do their best. And many parents give that message. And when the girl repeats that to the coach, co-captain, that's like coming in second. It's like losing. And the coach says, there's nothing wrong with second. And there's nothing yeah. wrong with third. There's nothing wrong with last if it's your best. Right. Yes. So you came up with the eight transformations, and I'd like to go into that. But first of all, how did you come up with those? Lots of conversations. Yeah. <laughs> and one of the, you know, Hank and I have brief biographies at the beginning of the book because we felt it was important. We'd gotten so many questions as we talked with folks about you know, mostly other parents about our idea. Are the two of you writing this in response to your childhood? They were high pressure and this is some kind of catharsis and wasn't the case for either of us, but professionally, clinically, and diving into the research literature, both we were both really struck by how harmful a certain kind of pressure can be. You know, we talked a lot about what we believed were the ways in which parenting style can be adjusted to diminish harmful pressure, to apply a kind of healthy pressure. In one of our first conversations, you know, after we'd done a good amount of digging in the literature, I said, Hank, you know, you told me this a year ago, and now I believe it too. It's impossible for parents not to apply pressure. We do it instinctively. It's because we care about outcomes for our kids. I mean, unless you're talking about a parent with profound addiction or a profound mental illness, that parent is acting in ways that make sense to that parent out of love, as, as Hank said, very well-intentioned. So we certainly didn't want to begin the book or include anywhere in the book, stop applying pressure, because that is absolutely impossible. But instead, we're thinking about the ways in which the application of pressure can change. So one of them, as Hank said, is not thinking about your child being the best, but rather being their best. Competitive uh, best to personal best. So yeah, that's be a like good way to put How we would call the transformation. What, what we found is that all these transformations were rooted in three components that are inherited in the parent-child relationship, communication, parental involvement, and parental warmth. And those three factors underlie the transformation. Like one of the things we noticed in terms of communication, we call it going from down communication to up communication, is that how pressure parents will use criticism, for example, to point out flaws telling the kid what they did wrong. Father might say, I can't believe you let the ground ball go through your legs. You let him three runs, you blew the game. How do you think that kid feels in his next little league game? He'll have a stomachache the morning of, he won't even be in the game. Whereas the supportive parent might say, next time there's a ground ball hit you, just bend down and block it. Next time, you're gonna get another chance. They use questions differently. Pressure parents will use questions to interrogate. They'll look for facts. You know, what did you get? What did you do today? Who are you talking to? While support parents will use questions to get their kids to articulate their interests and feelings. Tell me how you feel. What do you think about this? 
and we talked about parental involvement, you, you know, the rule of thumb, we tell parents that if you are too involved, your kids will say you are intrusive. And if it's the right amount, you're supportive. And, and the key is for parents to respect boundaries. Pressure parents will have no problem going into their 16-year-old's room without even knocking on the door, looking at their emails, their assignment books, as if it's their right to intrude on their boundaries. And that's where the controlling starts to come in. So within those three concepts, you know, we talked about like competitive best, the personal best, parent-centered expectations, to child-centered expectations. From display, it's like political correctness to um, letting the kid be their own individual type of expression. So those are some of them that we have. Monologue to a dialogue. So pressure parents do not exchange information. They're basically telling their kids to, to do, again, how many movies, TV shows, the parent just takes that authoritative style. Says there's no interaction. It's, uh, support parents are like with problem solving. They want to make sure that their kids are involved in the process of coming to a decision where pressure parents just care about the outcome in terms of decision and often will want to make the decision for their kids. So those would be some of the transformations. One of the things that I liked in the transformations is, is that you talked about warmth. And so can you talk about why warmth is so important and how does this connect to empathy? Sure. Well, warmth, and obviously we're not talking about temperature warmth, but interpersonal warmth. And we really emphasize the things that Hank mentioned a few minutes ago, whatever age your child is, but in an age appropriate way, including them in reflection and decision making about the smallest things like, are we going to have Cheerios or granola this morning to big things like, what should the consequence of this you're not listening or this transgression be? Or again, even bigger decisions about oh, you're unhappy being on the swim team. Do you finish out the season or do you quit? These can be really angsty decisions, both for parents and for kids. And when we talk about warmth, we're really talking about a dimension of including your child in conversations rather than meeting out decisions and justice and being sort of more authoritarian and telling your child, do this, do that. I think all parents at some point have said, you know, because I said so. And there may be a time and a place for that, depending on what kind of a day you're having. But mostly moving away from the because I said so and offering a rationale and including your child in some kind of discussion, not ad nauseum, but ultimately what you're trying to do is inculcate a kind of sophisticated reflection and decision making in your child's part because. Someday you won't be there to, at their side, tell them what to do. They have to figure out what is a healthy choice for themselves, right? So that's one dimension is that kind of involvement in decision-making. Um, and another is reliability, just being there. And that doesn't mean in a performative way, like, I went to all of my kids' soccer games. Well, if you went to all of your kids' soccer games, but spent the time on the sidelines, exclusively talking to other parents or exclusively being on your phone, returning emails, it doesn't really matter that you were physically there. Actual presence, that kind of interpersonal warmth is really, really important. So it relates to empathy because we often 
and both of you hinted at this earlier, are inclined because we care, because we love our kids to solve problems when the the kids have them. I mean, the irony is in a lot of cases, the kids know what the solution is. You know, when your child comes to you and has a complaint about all the homework they have and they're feeling overwhelmed and this and that, and their physics teacher's a jerk and they have a paper due and they have a problem set due and then there's a quiz on Friday, our inclination as parents is to say, okay, well, you know what you need to do? You need to make yourself a list. If you haven't already, start with one thing and check that off the list. And if it's a big thing, break it into little parts. But, you know, start with the things that are due tomorrow. And our kids know that. I mean, sometimes kids don't, but almost always they do. And they certainly don't want to be told again what to do. The reason they're coming, doing this complaining and giving you the litany of stressors is because they want connection. They want some warmth in that moment. They want a parent who will just sigh and say, you've got a lot to do in a short period of time. That's got to make you feel overwhelmed. Or, wow, you know, sometimes there are weeks when it feels like nothing is due. And then you have weeks like you're having right now where it feels like everything is due on the same day, period, full stop, because the power of empathy is in the, the pause afterwards. So don't rush to say, okay, and as overwhelming as it might be, this is what you need to do. It's very tempting sometimes if you have offered loving guidance to your child and now they're coming to complain about A, B, C, D, and E that you say, well, that's exact. that was what I tried to explain on Saturday morning. You know, you asked me on Saturday morning, you said you had all this stuff to do. I gave you a plan. We had a plan and now it's Sunday night and now look. Okay. I understand, you know, and sometimes we do express our frustration as parents. And I don't, you know, neither Hank or I begrudge parents doing that. We're human. But to the extent possible, offering some empathy is a way to bring somebody's negative emotions down out of the rafters, right? Because as you know, Colleen, as a clinician, we can't really do our clearest, best thinking until the intensity of negative emotions is diminished a little bit. And by offering empathy, which is a a compassionate display of warmth, whether you agree or disagree with what's going on doesn't matter, but offering your child some empathy is a way to get them, they're literally helping their brains reset to the point where they could engage in some creative problem solving. And you can also see the importance of warmth. Like I can have very unrealistic expectations of my kid. Let's say he's playing a tennis match. He's the worst on the team. And my unrealistic expectation is he's going to win this match. Now, that's okay as long as when he loses, I still give him a hug. And I say, so what? You lost. I still love you and whatever. You're still a great kid. What many parents will do is they will set up the parent-child relationship like it's a sports contract is that you got to perform to get these good, you know, incentives. So when the parent has their unrealistically high expectation of which the kid has no chance to meet, and when the kid doesn't meet it, the parent becomes cold and rejecting versus if the kid wins. Parents, one of the things we'd recommend is that parents should sit back, take a few minutes, and ask themselves, how do I express warmth to my son or daughter? How do I express, you know, unconditional acceptance? And one of the things we've noticed is that too many parents don't use tactile communication enough. You use it when the kid is little. 
when your kid is three years old, parents can't hug that child enough, you know, or most parents hugging and kissing. But all of a sudden, as the kid gets older, tactile communication becomes less and less and less. I, I used to see parents shaking their kids' hands when they dropped them off at college rather than, quote, giving a hug. So again, back to that thing with high standards and high expectations, those are great parental tools, but they need to be underlined by when the child doesn't meet those standards or expectations that you are still exhibiting warmth so they feel safe. And that feeling of safety will allow them to try their best. They won't rather than feel anxious that they're going to fail. Because for many kids, if they fail, they equate that with, then my parents will not love me. I completely agree. And I've heard from kids so many times is, and just insert a different thing, but like my parents only care about my grades. My parents only care about how I perform. My parents only care about if I get the scholarship, they don't care about me. So that's what I think you're addressing is the kid needs to feel that you care about them and they're not a data point. And you care about the whole person. I'm a big, big relational person. And I think parents get confused because they think, well, I'm not supposed to be their best friend. And I always say, well, you're not supposed to be their enemy either. And it's about warmth and seeing the whole person. So we could talk for another like three hours, I think, on this subject. But why don't we start to wind this down? And any last bit of advice for the moms listening? I love what you just said. I think it should be your next book is your kid is not a data point. Um, and truly, you know, to build on what Hank said, we're so blessed, whether it, you know, it's your biological child or adopted child, or it's such a wonderful blessing, I think, to have a child. Or if you are an aunt or uncle or teacher or coach or clergy or mentor, and you contribute in some way to a child's development, that counts as a kind of parenting, right? It all does. And we, we really do, all of us who come in contact with young people from camp counselors to grandparents have influence on these young people's lives. And Hank said it briefly earlier, but I would leave as a closing comment. It requires a great deal of humility, but there's tremendous value to asking your child, or if you're a teacher, your students, or if you're a coach, your players, how do I come across? I'm trying to do this. How does it land? This is my intent. What is the impact? You can ask it in a lot of different ways, but as I said, they all require humility. And as much as self ratings are of great value, and we've been talking about reflection this past hour, it is also important to get the opinion and you know, in a, in a real way, not, you know, it might start out as a kind of funny, sarcastic conversation, but when your child realizes or your student or your players realize, no, you're really invested in the relationship and in a healthy way to uphold these high standards, then they will give you their feedback. Now, it doesn't mean that whatever they say you, you have to do or that what you're doing is wrong, but the pressure that Hank and I are writing about in the unlikely art of parental pressure is pressure that kids feel. So we need to spend some of our time asking the kids directly. So that would be my final word. What about you, Hank? Uh, what I would say is I want people to think of pressure and that one of the things I've learned, it's easier 
to push down. It's to put pressure when you push down rather than to push up. And that's what we're asking parents to do. It's easy to step on something and press down. I notice in, in you, you know, you go to the gym, uh, the things, your pull muscles become easier than your pushing. That's work. And that's what we're asking parents to do is to push up rather than push down. Because when they do that, instead of their teen or child feeling that parental pressure, feeling of, I have to perform, what happens when you're pushing up, it becomes, I want to perform. Mm -hmm. And if parents follow what we like to say are transformations and execute the principles we talk about in the book, it will allow parents to transform pressure so that their child will experience it as a sense of guidance, support, motivation, and encouragement. And if you do that, the bonus is when your kids are 25, they'll still be calling you and looking forward to, to seeing you and coming home. I love it. This is wonderful. So how can parents reach out to you and where can they find your book? Well, they can find The Unlikely Art of Parental Pressure on Amazon.com or BarnesandNoble.com or at their local booksellers. Hank and I are also developing an online course, which will be on the website uh, ParentalPressure.com. So stay tuned for that. We hope to have Facebook that up and page. running in a few like months. like to hear people's comments on the Yeah. Page. And one of the things yeah. I'll say, and I want parents to take this seriously, is that what I've noticed is when parents get the book is so engaging that the partners actually argue about who's going to read it. So I would recommend <laughs> each, each set of parents, they, they each get their own copy. Oh, for sure. <laughs> Your kid doesn't need to see you arguing. Uh, I, I love that. Great point. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Colleen. This concludes this week's episode of Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast. If this podcast has been helpful, I would absolutely love it if you could go to Apple Podcasts and give Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast a five-star review. This makes it easier for other moms like you to find the support and encouragement they need. Also, my best-selling and award-winning book, Dial Down the Drama, Reducing Conflict, Reconnecting with Your Teenage Daughter, A Guide for Mothers Everywhere, you can find that and order it online at Amazon and Barnes and & Noble. And you can always find other great resources and contact me at ColleenOGrady.com, two L's and two E's. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.